Welcome back to the Overthinking Movies Podcast. I'm your overthinking host, Brandon Hain. I've got overthinking co-host Alex Julacki with me, and we'll be discussing Shazam! Fury of the Gods. But before that, I also wanted to take a bit to talk a bit about Shazam 1, because I actually just saw it right before Shazam 2 for the first time. Per my recommendations, I'd been hyping that one up for you for a while. Yeah, I finally got around to it. And yeah, Alex is right. Shazam is a pretty good movie. It's it's weird. It's like a movie where, because, you know, there's a million superhero movies now. But Shazam was a movie where it felt like the people behind it were like, oh boy, we get to make a superhero movie. Let's make it fun. And that's what Shazam is. If you don't know what Shazam is, essentially, it's a kid that gains the abilities to turn into an adult superhero. So you get to play around with an adult superhero body that acts like a teenager. And when he's in his adult form, he's played by Zachary Levi, who does a fantastic job. Like, that guy basically makes the movie... And Asher Angel as Billy Batson honestly does a really good job too. Like it, and it's not just the actors. I mean, the actors are a large part of why the first Shazam works so well. It's also just because the script, like the, the characters have decent emotional hooks. The villain, they do that good superhero movie thing where the entire opening is just spent trying to build up the backstory of the villain. Not to say that Thaddeus has like an incredible backstory. It's a little hackneyed, but. I feel like it's enough where you get it. Like, it's clearly motivated why this person would turn into this kind of person and why he would want these kind of things. And he ends up making an effective villain that, mainly thanks to the fact that the movie's directed by horror director David F. Sandberg, uh, leads to a lot of horrifying sequences of Thaddeus doing terrible things that are honestly traumatizing, I think, to any kids watching in the audience, but it also makes him an effective villain, because I'm like, wow, this guy could really hurt some people. Which, which, of course, then contrasts with Shazam, now first learning he has superpowers, trying to buy alcohol from a store and trying to get into a strip club, despite, you know, being technically the body of a teenager, and you get a lot of those hilarious kind of moments that, even though they're technically cliché, they're just really well acted and charming and well portrayed, and the movie is just a real joy to sit through. I my only real problem with it, Alex, is that I did think it's a bit long. Long, okay. It's it's two hours and ten minutes, and it feels it by the time you get to the end. But the twist that Shazam gives his superpowers to his friends, and they also turn into superheroes, was a really fun twist, and it made the finale an extra bit of fun because you now have a bunch of kids turning into adults uh, with these adult actors acting like children as they fight these villains. And it's, I really enjoyed all of that. Like Shazam is a solid superhero movie that DC should be proud to add to their roster of not so great most of the time superhero movies. Right, it's one of the only DC pieces that got me excited of actual live action DC universe type stuff that they're putting out. That's not just another Batman movie. I mean, Wonder Woman was all right, I guess, but yeah. (laughs) So going into Shazam 2, I was pretty interested just to see because it's the same director, same writer. Now, I should say that there is an extra writer in Shazam 2. Uh, Shazam 1 was just written by uh, uh, Henry Gaiden and Shazam... Fury of the Gods is written by Harry Gaydon and Chris Morgan. And if you don't know who Chris Morgan is, Alex, he is the writer of many of the Fast and the Furious movies. Oh. He was also one of the many writers on Alex Kurtzman's movie, The Mummy, with Tom Cruise. Oh, no. Oh, yes. 
And, well, we'll see if that really has an effect on Shazam 2 as we get into our discussion. As usual, we're going to do general thoughts, and then we're going to, after that, give a spoiler warning when we're going to start discussing some of the spoilers, which shouldn't be too much in this one, because it's, it's a pretty straightforward sequel type of movie. Also, Alex, we should mention Black Adam came out with The Rock, and that's technically a spinoff of Shazam. Okay, yeah, that's the one that everyone missed. Yeah, everyone did because nobody cared. It was a huge box office bomb. And from people that did see it, I heard, yeah, just just skip it. See, I, I didn't even realize that it was connected to, to this as closely as that. I might have been more interested if that had been the case because, yeah, I had really liked Shazam when I saw it a while back. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I... I didn't know who Black Adam was, and I didn't necessarily care, because when I got into seeing... Because with Shazam, you see the trailer, and you and you already get the base concept of what makes Shazam unique. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go see that. But no, I, I skipped Black Adam, so I don't know if there's anything in Black Adam I missed. From what I gathered from Shazam 2, not much, really. It kind of just stands on its own. I think so, right? I don't think that you'd be missing much that would have added to this experience, at least, no. Yeah, but, uh, so what did I think of Shazam 2 Fury of the Gods? Uh, Shazam 2 Fury of the Gods is, like, one of the most typical examples of sequel-itis. It has the things in the first movie you liked, and they're still sometimes charming, but they don't work as well as they did in the first movie. Some of it's because of diminishing returns. Some of it's because the writing just at times isn't as solid as the first one. And overall, I just found a lot of this plot either underdeveloped or trying to shove in too many things at once that needed more, really kind of needed a bit more time or needed to be written away that there was development going on. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, but by the climax, I was kind of ready to be done with the movie. Right. And uh, I was, I, it, it was all right. <laughs> yeah. So when I went into this one, it, it like jumps right into it and starts trying to get back into the laughs and things like we had a lot of in the first, which is largely what stuck out to Shazam for me. A DC superhero movie that's actually fun. It's funny and stuff. Wow. So it really dives into that in this one, which took a while before it actually worked per se. I enjoyed the comedy to some extent. I wasn't rolling my eyes or anything, but I wasn't necessarily laughing for a while either. But as it went into it further, I actually did have a fair amount of legitimate actual <laughs> kind of laughs and stuff like that there were a few that did get me in this one too it was just like you said it was far less to the degree of the first one right right but overall like that aspect of it i think worked pretty well for me what didn't work was the actual superhero action i liked some of it towards the beginning but like you said you were ready for it to be over during the whole climax. I don't know if it was a problem with necessarily the plot not being developed enough, or if it was just that it frankly wasn't that interesting. Some of the designs on some of the creatures that are unleashed are cool, but it just goes on and on. It just was not as engaging action as in the first. It's been, like I told you, it had been a while since I saw the first, but I can distinctly remember Shazam's battle in the, the mall or whatever it was and punching through some of the walls and things that you could really feel a lot of the impact to and were really cool. But this just, oh, he's up against a bunch of creatures and things like that. And wowee, it's just going to be bam, punch, pow, wow. I don't know. It just, the action in this movie for me to sum it up is dull where I think 
a lot of the fun still works at the sequences where you get a lot of the focus on the fun. Yes, the climax is a large portion of Shazam and the other characters fighting CG monsters, which, yeah, as you said, despite the fact that what these monsters are is pretty cool, the designs of them aren't really all that interesting, especially because they're all kind of the same size and they're all kind of just gray. Same size and shade, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you liked the first Shazam, would I recommend seeing it? I mean, here's the thing. I Like Alex said, a lot of the comedy still works. Like, the characters are still charming. This is still way better than a lot of other superhero movies I've seen in the endless catalog we now have nowadays. But is it something that I would rush out to a theater to see? Not really. Like, Shazam 2 feels like something you would stream once it comes out on Netflix or whatever. The last thing I did want to mention before we get into spoilers, Alex, is that uh, I did really like the performance of Helen Mirren as one of our head villains, because uh, we actually have a family of villains in the movie, because of course it's a story about family, because the heroes have a family, so we fight villains <laughs> that have a family, so, you know. But it's a dysfunctional family, so they don't work as well, so that's... No, yeah, yeah the villains kind of themselves... Plot. I don't always go for DC when they, they do their, oh, these are these ancient ones who have been around forever. And I mean, I, I it's kind of like what didn't work to me. The original Wonder Woman is just this really generic ancient Greek, Roman, etc. God type thing. Uh, th you're right. These three were actually pretty engaging as a... Uh, as a family and what they do with them before the movie just focuses on nothing but hard-hitting action is, is fun too. It's better than other examples I've seen of these kind of characters in superhero movies. Yeah, they have little interpersonal family arguments and, you know, there's a lot of times where some of them morally are having questions about what to do about things and I liked all that. I guess I just felt like I would have wanted to see more about the backstory of their relationship as sisters. Like, they talk so much about being the daughters of Atlas and who their father was. I wanted, like, a flashback. I wanted to see Atlas. I wanted to see, like, at least a little scene of him, like, raising them and seeing the relationship as kids and how it developed into how kind of jaded they are to each other now. I think that could have been really interesting to give them a little more to work with. There are certainly a lot of questions you could have between these three and their relationships because there are some pretty distinct differences between them that, you know, you might, that they even bring up in the movie. Like, well, you look really young and you look really old. What's up? Like, your sisters? What's up with all this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's just uh, because of how they are in the comics or how that works. But yes, the villains are, are decent in the movie. The, the heroes are once again decent. Like, the movie does have a lot of elements you could enjoy. It's just overall kind of bloated and not super engaging in terms of its main plot. And I think that's probably where we'll leave it for general thoughts, because I think we've kind of made our point at this point. Uh, check it out if you want, but I'd probably recommend this to go on streaming. It will probably go on streaming on HBO Max, being a DC movie, but we'll see. So... Spoilers in three, two, one. Shazam! Shazam. So, Alex, what did you think of the reveal of the one sister? Because you said three sisters in the general segment, which is technically a spoiler. Because we have a setup where, where one of the sisters turns out to be a girl that is going to one of the main heroes' um, high school, and she reveals, oh, I've been actually leading you on the whole time to lead you to the superheroes, but she had no idea that, of course, that the superheroes were kids right. that can turn into superheroes. So she doesn't realize the guy she's dating is actually one of them, and, you know, it, it creates this conflict where she likes him, but her sisters, you know, are like, no, we must destroy the humans, they're weak, puny things. 
Why did they give uh, th their power to them? And, and you know, that some of that stuff's decent with the arguing between all of them. Now, they do bring up at one point that the sister that is interested in the kid is 6,000 years old, and but she's still interested in him. Yeah, they do bring up that point. And he is, he is a kid. I mean, uh, again, like I was saying before, we noted that this would be spoilers, like... You know, like, well, why why do they look this way? Like, did they get stunted at a certain age in each case? Or did one of them, like, I mean, in, you know, 6,000 years, that's a lot of time to go looking around for fountain of youth type potions or things like that. I'm not sure what kind of logic they use with their gods. But yes, this is a high school kid and this is a 6,000 year old woman. Of course, stemming from Greek mythology type things, I don't think any sort of boundaries like that would have ever have uh, stopped them from doing whatever in the world they wanted with a lot of these kind of characters. You look at uh, Zeus and all that kind of thing and all these gods from this age. So, yeah. I... And the movie does that thing, Alex, where it like points it out, where the characters are like, this is not, this is weird, right? This is not good. And they're like, yeah, this is probably not good. And, but it still happens. Yes. Like, they still, like, get together. And the movie, I think, does that a few times with the relationships. And I'm just like, I I mean, okay, so Shazam's interest in Wonder Woman, that, I think, is okay. Like, it's it's a kid who has a crush on this older, super powerful lady. And that's something a teenager does. Yes. But, like, the actual relationship with a 6,000-year-old person, look, movie, just because you point it out doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Modern movies do that a lot, Alex, where they think because they're meta and they get the trope, that means that just doing the trope is fine. And I've never really liked that type of writing. Right. Now, what would have been appropriate is for them to wait five years so he could be like 20 or whatever and she could be 6,005 and then everything is okay. Yes, exactly. I mean, they could have just had it be that way, but whatever. It's fine. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of the ongoing story in this movie is that the characters are just old enough that they are about to be, you know, technically living on their own. They're no longer in the foster system. Right, the bulk of them, yeah, and yeah. It's all about them moving on, and like Shazam, or well, Billy, is trying to keep his family together, but his family is like, they're getting older now, and they're kind of thinking about going their separate ways, and Billy's being too clingy, and the movie's about him finally letting go of his family to move on. But of course, it's a superhero movie, so him not being clingy to his family anymore, meaning uh, he has to do like a big self-sacrificing scene and die. Right, which is pretty reasonable for him to be this concerned based on his history in the foster care system. Right. Although, I think just based on how he was written before, a lot of his thought process still seems to work well for if he was supposed to be like an older kid or a younger teenager, but it doesn't at points it didn't seem congruent with what I would expect, like a 17-year-old teenager or however old he is close to being at this point. Did you kind of feel that way as well? Yes, Alex, and I think the reason for that is because why the first movie works so damn well is because a lot of the story is based around Billy being an arrogant little jerk <laughs> yeah. that is using his powers selfishly and you get excellent scenes of Shazam, this like adult looking superhero, being just really petty and terrible. And it leads to good comedy and then also good drama because then when terrible things do happen, sometimes caused by his own powers that he's not using responsibly, he has to then fix that. And it leads to sequences that like that wonderful scene where like that bus is about to fall off that bridge and Billy like 
he's afraid of catching it, so he like takes out like a a mattress and lays it on the concrete, expecting anybody that falls out of that bus to land on the bed. Yes. It's just, it's it's hilarious because he's just, he's a kid and he's stupid and he's petty and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's an idiot that it just has built up this awful ego. And so my worry going into Shazam 2 is that, well, Billy's arc is over. How do you still make Shazam funny and act kind of goofy and immature in a movie where he kind of has to act more mature because now he's leading a team? Right. And so you're right. It kind of leads to he still acts kind of quirky and stuff. Now, I feel like the writers do at least a decent job of motivating his pettiness or or his or the comedy through the conflict he's going through of not letting his family go. No, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And even him trying to build into a leadership role makes sense, too. And some of what they do with that, I think, does work consistently with what I would expect. It's just a lot of the way they got their laughs, they didn't try hard enough to make him sound more like an older teenager doing these things or messing up than still the same you know, 12 or 13 or 14 year old, whatever it was before. Yeah, they, they leaned back on that same level of immaturity just to try to get that same character, that same exact energy back when, yeah, it would have been better to try to write Shazam a little differently. What did you think of them bringing back the wizard from the first movie who we see crumble into ash? In this, <laughs> mo- in this movie, he's alive and the only time they explain it is in like a one-off throwaway line where he says something like, I was only, like, manifesting in your world, and then I uh, reformed back in my world, or something like that. And I'm like, what? Okay, I guess. I mean, I think they just wanted to have the wizard as a fun tag-along character, because everybody liked that character in the first movie. Honestly, I didn't... He's not necessarily what sticks out in the first movie to me a lot, having not seen it for a while. I did not have a problem with them bringing him back, though... For this one, he is a, a fun tag along to have here once again, and their explanation really is pretty thin and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But for a, a wizard god thing that exists among you know six thousand year olds trying to take over the world and whatnot, I have no problem with very thin explanations to get it back. I suppose that we of our realm just could not comprehend even how these things would work. Ultimately, I don't think he does a lot for the story, really, but he works well as a tag-along character, and I did like the little scene at the end where he's now trying to live outside of his temple and instead live in our world and see our people after getting to know Billy's friend and try to live among us, and I think that's a good direction for that character. I mean, I don't really know if they'll make another Shazam after this. I mean, so far, box office is not even making back its budget, which, to be fair, Alex, the theater I was in was, there was, like, maybe two other families, and then that was it. I guess mine wasn't particularly packed either. I went on a Saturday this time, though, so they did have a lot of showtimes throughout the day. Um, At least I can say, from my theater experience, I got a fair amount of reactions from the people who were there, too. I'd be taking turns again between my group and some of the other groups giving a hearty laugh here and there or some excitement for when some of the other DC characters appeared on screen and things like that. So, I mean, at least people did seem to be enjoying it, like the actual moviegoer. Uh, I will say that the second the credits hit, some of them did just leave and then like a few stuck around to see the after credit stuff. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I was talking to this. I was talking about this to you earlier and I had that same thing. I think a lot of people stuck around for the first post credit sequence 
but literally, I think only myself and one other person stuck around for the second one, and also the person, my wife, did not stick around for the second post-sequence scene. It was me and, like, this one probably nine or ten-year-old kid knew something else was probably going to happen to. And I will say, Alex, when everybody was leaving the theater, it was dead silent. Hmm. They weren't even, like, discussing anything about the movie. They were just completely silent leaving the theater. <laughs> okay. Which probably isn't a good sign. No, I, I definitely got a different vibe from my theater group, I think. I think people seem to enjoy okay. it a little bit more, yeah. I did have a lot of families with younger kids here. I'm not sure if that was the case with you or not. It was some younger kids. It was some, like, teens. And then it was some just, like, parents sitting there watching it. Uh, and I did hear laughs here and there. Yeah. Though I did note that I was actually laughing more in the theater than the other people around me. <laughs> uh, once again, I did want to highlight how much I liked Helen Mirren in this movie. She's, like, the one actress where I'm like, okay, yeah, she can play a god. Like, I don't, I don't even need any explanation. Her voice is, like, gigantic. <laughs> Has such amazing power and presence and articulation that when they, they use her really effectively. The part where she reads the message that Shazam sends to her. Yeah, okay, that worked on a lot of levels. That was, that got the biggest laugh out of me on any sequence in the movie with just how serious she read that to as this inane thing that they came up with. Is, is described. That worked really great. So, a side character in the movie is a sentient pen that the characters talk to to write letters for them, but the problem is, is that the pen literally writes anything they say. So if they're just, like, making a side comment, it writes that too. So you get, honestly, like Alex said, probably the funniest scene in the movie where Helen Mirren's character is in her giant, massive, god-like, serious voice is reading this note to her sent by Shazam. She's reading it like a serious, threatening note that she would be getting from her biggest enemy. But it's, of course, just Shazam being like, yeah, that's pretty good, right? Like, this is this seems like a good note. Oh, uh, what else do you think we should add? Oh, yeah, we should mention that, too. Oh, guys, um, after this, do you want to go get some Gatorade? My energy's kind of low. And, like, she, she's, like, reading all this in her epic god voice. It, it is really funny, and then it's, it's punctuated by then one of the other sisters interrogating Shazam's friend that was kidnapped, going, What is Gatorade? Is it some sort of weapon? <laughs> that, that was great. And then I also really enjoyed the scene that this leads to. Shazam goes to, like, those food stands, and he buys, like, and he buys french fries and hot dogs, and he sits down at this table because he, he wants to make this... Philly cheesesteaks, I think. Yeah, he buys Philly cheesesteaks because... He just wanted to give the best impression, I guess, in his teenage mind to give to this god to offer her some food. Of course, she never eats any of it. But it leads to a great scene where you have, like, this wit going back and forth between her and Billy. And she's, like, seriously debating. Like, you think she's going to just do the typical villain thing where she just goes, You have no power over me. I am a god. Instead, she's pointing out the inconsistencies or the insecurities she's getting from Billy and playing off of his wit in a way that I honestly found really effective. And a lot of it is because of how great Helen Mirren is just giving her all to her performance. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the action scene that it leads to. Yeah, yeah, that action scene works pretty 
well. Yeah, right. all that mid stuff in the movie I really enjoyed. And even when t- we get towards the end where Helen Mirren is then portrayed by her sister, even the most cliche villain stuff, like when she thinks she's going to die and she creates that smaller shield around her sister to block her out so that Billy can get to her. And the sister's like yelling at her for betraying her and stuff like this. I forget what Helen Mirren's exact line is when she's like yelling about her, how why she portrayed her sister and her defiance. But just Helen Mirren's delivery is so good. It takes lines that is such like typical villain dialogue. And because of how she <laughs> delivers it, it just works. This is what happens, right? If you cast actors that are going to give something to their supervillain roles, it sells it no matter how cliche the material can be. Lucy Liu is her sister, the one that portrays her. Uh, She was okay. She technically becomes the main, main villain. But I didn't get much of a vibe off of her that gave the same level of presence. She's more like the underminded sister who is constantly insulted until she portrays her other sisters. Uh, Who then becomes the more stereotypical arch-villain type that, you know, just isn't as colorful of a picture either. Right, because what makes Helen Mirian fun is that she is legitimately listening to her sisters and trying to decide amongst their, amongst themselves about how they feel. Because there's, there's decent scenes in the movie where they're like all debating what to do about Earth and what to do about humans and... You know, on one end, Helen Mirren kind of sees her younger sister's side where she, you know, she's the one that has the relationship with the human. And she's like, well, I don't think we should hurt them. I feel like if we plant the the golden apple on Earth, it's not going to work right with their soil. And the other sister's like, no, we must destroy their world because, you know, they took our power and all this kind of stuff. And and they were chosen, so they deserve it. And Helen Mirren's kind of on her other sister's side. She's like, well, I don't know. I mean... They, cause, but that's what I like, right, is that there's actual debate amongst the sisters and they feel like siblings over a typical situation of them all kind of deciding on we must destroy Earth for revenge for our father. Right. And that's partially why Shazam 2 still works better as a movie is because there's still thought put into the family dynamics on both sides that lead to some interesting stuff that is that is worth getting engaged in, even if the ultimate stuff it leads to, particularly in the climax, is not very interesting, like Shazam fighting a giant dragon. Yep. So here's the, the point where I'm going to start getting into dumb, really nitpicky stuff. The fact... Okay, so... Hmm, <laughs> they have to tame a unicorn and... Unitorns, you know, by mythology, they have to be tamed by drinking or being offered a nectar of the gods. And the movie's twist is this little girl gives it Skittles because they're the color of the rainbow. So that will convince it. And she says to the unicorn, I'm sorry, this is the closest thing I have to to the nectar of the gods. And the unicorn's like, no, it's cool. We're a team now. I'm like, what? I don't know about that. That seems pretty stupid, like, even for this movie. (laughs) I had the exact... I'm sure I had the exact same expression on my face as you did for your face during this whole unicorn sequence. It just seemed so pandery. Okay, we have to play up the unicorn as the king of all beasts in, in mythology and then do the whole Skittles thing and then go riding them around and make a big deal about this. But, I mean, you know, I can have my qualms about this even if I think this whole thing was just pandering to little girls. But, I mean, this this is a, a, like a, a kid's superhero movie in 2023, so, you know, my wife liked that sequence a lot. She thought it was really cute. 
I can have my gripes with this, you can have yours, but maybe, I mean, obviously we're not the ones that this sequence was for. I just, oh man, my face was so disgusted by the whole thing, though, nonetheless. I felt like there should have been some other explanation that would have made more sense for a mythological creature that you're trying to tame. But the other thing... And okay, I'm gonna, uh, this is probably going to make me sound like a buzzkill. So the part where Shazam's inside of the big bubble and he's trying to power up the staff so he can use it as a bomb to destroy the dragon. So he like shoots his lightning into the air so that it rebounds off of the shield and goes into his staff. Shazam, just shoot the lightning directly into the staff. I mean, I guess visually it's cooler, but why does he have to, like, make it rebound off of everything that is really inefficient when he could just shoot his lightning directly into the staff, powered up, and then hit the dragon? Like, it does lead to a, a decent shot where he delivers the final lightning bolt by screaming Shazam, and the lightning that comes down from the sky hits the staff at the right time to destroy the dragon. Like, that, dramatically, that works. He didn't need to do that. He could have just, like, shot into the staff to power it up and then hit the dragon. He didn't have to turn back into his alter ego and die. <laughs> no. I mean, I'll tell you, Brandon, by the time we even got to this point, I was so disengaged with a lot of the battling of the dragon. I just found it to be so dull that I didn't even, like, notice when he died somehow. And then they go to this whole sequence where they're standing over the graves and making a big deal about this. Obviously, they're not going to kill him off, but they're playing it out pretty well. Enough that I should have at least noticed at the point when he died, but I have to admit I didn't even notice it. Oh. <laughs> I was just so... I don't know, Brandon. This action stuff just did not work for me at all. I found it to be incredibly dull. Yeah, I mean... So I felt bad about that. The scene where he died, Alex, I did like it, because they, like, show his body, and it's pretty messed up looking. And, like, his friend being not so much sad, but angry at him for dying. Right, yeah, no, that... Yeah, I perked up for that. Like, what? Oh, he's dead now? Okay. <laughs> uh, but no, he's brought back to life, because... You need a god. One of the other things going on in this movie is that the characters keep losing and gaining back their powers because the god characters can take away their abilities with the staff. And by the end, everybody pretty much has no power besides Shazam. So they have no way of using the power to bring uh, Shazam back from the dead. And it's brought back by Wonder Woman. Surprise appearance because she has godlike powers. And she grabs the staff and powers it up and saves his life. And because, I mean, the reason they're doing this, Alex, is because we had that scene at the end of the first one where Superman meets Shazam in the lunchroom to surprise his best friend. Right, and, right. Which they referenced several times in here. Yeah, and that actually was was a great note to end the first movie on because they only tease it once in the first movie. So then when it happens at the clear end and we actually see Superman and you see Shazam and Shazam's friend react like, oh my God, it was a final ha that it got out of me before the movie ended. And I was thought, that's pretty good. Because like with the Wonder Woman thing, you already know from the second they hint Wonder Woman that Shazam has an infatuation for Wonder Woman that they're immediately going to put Wonder Woman in at the end because they did that in the last movie. Once again, diminishing effect of sequels. You can't just repeat the same thing because we know what's going to happen. I have to admit, though, that at least the build up to that with the way they were illustrating his infatuation with her, I thought also worked pretty well in this one. It was pretty funny. And then, like, you get the whole sequence where the wizard switches heads with Wonder Woman in the middle of the dream. And I liked that visual nightmare right there. 
So by the end of it, when you even just get some of his interactions with her and stuff about that, like, yeah, I, I liked that. That was enjoyable. Once again, the actual ending brought me back into this because the characters light up enough that I can, even if it was kind of predictable, like, get back into it a bit. I just got so bored with the dragon fight, I'll have to admit. And I've always liked Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman in this universe. So she always exudes this kind of wholesome superhero energy in that role. It's a shame that your last movie wasn't very good, but uh, I like you in that role. So maybe they'll do more stuff with her as time comes. I did at least want to draw attention to the one thing I think the movie does well that's a really minor thing, but... Uh, I was telling Alex off the recording that I was actually very happy with how Shazam 2 did its post-credit sequence because in Shazam 1, the the post-credit sequence is that we see the main villain of the first movie in jail and he's like writing symbols on the walls because his whole gimmick was about trying to write symbols to open the door to another world and it's not working and it's fruitless and then Suddenly, this caterpillar, which if we remember right, in Shazam's lair, there was like this caterpillar in like a glass dome that was just like there. Then we see the glass dome later in the movie is broken and the caterpillar actually shows up in the ending after credit scene of the movie here in the jail cell. It shows up and it's like, Thaddeus, we must team up and destroy the world. And Thaddeus is, of course, like, tell me more. And it cuts to black and it's like just the most typical uh, next villain setup sort of thing. And I was like, oh no, they're not going to just make Thaddeus the villain in two, right? That would be pretty lame. So then in Shazam 2, the after credit scene is that no, Thaddeus is still in his jail cell, and it's two years later, he has, like, a beard now, and he's still writing on the wall, and then the caterpillar comes back, and he's like, this time, I swear, Thaddeus, we will conquer the world, and Thaddeus is like, where the hell have you been? It's been two years, I've just been sitting here in this jail cell, and the caterpillar is like, well, I'm just a caterpillar, it takes a long time to walk back and forth over here, but I swear, the next time I arrive, we will conquer <laughs> the world. And Thaddeus is just like, I, dude, I, I'm done. I don't, I'm tired of this. I don't, I don't want to wait anymore. And so, yeah, I thought that was a clever way of playing around with the typical next villain setup scene that so many of these movies have. That was a cute way of basically just making fun of it because I am kind of getting tired of that cliche. Um, so that's it for Shazam 2. I did want to mention that one of the trailers that I got before the movie, Alex, was of course for the Flash movie coming out soon. That's going to be the movie that essentially tries to rewrite or, you know, uh, redo elements of the DC cinematic universe to try to improve or fix things. Yeah, they've got they've got their work cut out for them then. Oh, they sure do. But it looks like they have Michael Keaton's Batman there to try to bring it back. Yeah, I've been seeing them really, really go into that on uh, social media that this is going to be a big deal. He's back. Which I'm like, yeah, he was he was fine, Batman. I know a lot of people are particularly nostalgic for him. I can't say that I am, but you know, he still he still does a good job. I'm also not quite sure what this is because I feel like they are hiding something, Alex. Because there was a part in the trailer where it also shows Batman driving the the Christian Bale looking bat cycle, and I'm wondering if this is basically gonna be well, the, the Flash No Way Home into the Bat first. It's gonna be like they're gonna bring in all of the Batman actors in yeah. it to like have roles and cameo. That's probably what they're hiding, and that would be cute, I guess. I don't know if... I mean, it's it's the DC movies, so I'm cautious <laughs> about how this is going to go. 
I mean, I am interested in the plot. I think the whole idea of, like, the Flash messing around with time and the universes and rewriting things could lead to a pretty interesting movie. And I did like the actor that plays Flash. Uh, at least in the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, I really liked what they did with this character. But we'll see. I don't know. I I mean, my hope is, and I, have you seen the video, Alex, where James Gunn is talking about his plans because now he's the head of the DC universe? I have not seen the video per se, no. James Gunn, the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy films, is now heading the DC universe and he's going to be basically deciding where movies go from here. And I'm intrigued because I think James Gunn has a passion for the material that could create something cool. I know that when I talked to a friend of mine that he said that some of the movies that he said are coming are superheroes that have never been adapted before that would actually make really good movies that will also be different and something new. So I'm intrigued by that. He, he, James Gunn is making a new Superman movie. That's going to be... I did see that, yeah. Yeah, 2025, like Superman Legacy, I think is what it's going to be called. I I don't know. It's Superman at the end of the day. Do I think James Gunn could possibly make a cool Superman movie? It's possible. Do you think it'll be better than the last Superman standalone movie? Undoubtedly. It would have to try very hard not to be. Uh, Man of Steel, yeah. I mean, I know some people like Man of Steel. I, I don't. I think it's a movie where it's super self-serious and... The dialogue is all just characters debating philosophy instead of actually having personalities. Oh, oh no, no, I'm wrong. There is a part yep. where Lois Lane makes a dick joke, so that was character development for her. <sighs> but uh, no, I, I really don't like Man of Steel. I really, really don't like Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. So, I yeah, look, I'll give James Gunn the benefit of the doubt. I do think at the end of the day, this is a situation of too little, too late, because the DCEU has been going on so long at this point with so many misses. Right. But hey, I think people are, there's still enough people out there that want to see superhero movies that if they make a good new Superman movie or a good new superhero movie in the DC universe, people will, will be in for it. Like, hey, who knows, Alex? Maybe this will be the point where as the Marvel movies start to decrease in quality or decrease in enthusiasm from audience members, this is where the DC universe picks up. Maybe it, it so. It could be possible. I don't know. I was noting how particularly Marvel-like this Shazam 2 was, though, between a higher focus on humor, which didn't feel as thrown in as a lot of Marvel movies, to the um, incredibly dull and overdrawn epic finale battle where they just fight armies of creatures as you often get in those to having to sit through several sets of post-sequence scenes i mean they're i don't know dc just seems to follow up on marvel every few years later to do too a little too late and then just releases another batman movie unrelatedly which is good right i mean i'm very happy that the batman that we covered last year is not going to be part of this universe the batman is purely just going to be it's it's no own. i don't think they want it to be in a world that allows for such chaos and unrealistic sort of characters that can fly around and do all this stuff. It's supposed to be a, another grounded Batman series. Yeah, grounded realistic series. So I'm very excited for whatever they have for that franchise next. But in terms of the DC universe, I mean, I'll, I'll probably go see The Flash. I think the concept is interesting enough that I, I would want to check it out. And if you'll, you know, join me to cover that, Alex, it could be an interesting time. Yeah, definitely. Michael Keaton return to the role as Batman and whatever other right. stuff they're clearly hiding that isn't in the trailer. 
So, yeah, that could be cool. That that won't be for a little bit, but I'm I'm definitely interested. Uh, Shazam 2, like we said, wasn't bad. Just, it was definitely a, a, another example of sequel-itis of diminishing returns from the first movie where it's not quite as good and there's definitely things that aren't as engaging, but there's potential here. And I feel like the DC Universe has a chance to recover. Is it going to be enough for audiences? <laughs> uh, we'll just have to see. But uh, that all said, Alex, thank you for joining me, and I'll see you in whatever they have in this universe next. I assume you're also, of course, very excited for uh, Aquaman 2. So. Aquaman 2? Oh, boy. I guess I have to watch Aquaman 1. Well, yeah, we'll have to watch Aquaman 1 to catch up, uh, because I, I know we're both very uh, interested in Aquaman. I can see that scary octopus you told me about. I know there's that the, the horror director did it, so there's that terrifying uh, octopus playing the musical instruments in the background. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Maybe, I mean, maybe that'll happen, but I feel like most you and I would probably be bored <laughs> watching those movies. So anyway, as always, Alex, thank you, and we'll see you in whatever DC movie we're doing next, or if you're joining us for Godzilla, welcome back for more Godzilla soon. And that wraps up our review of superhero movie 246 or something. Thank you as always for listening. If you'd like to send feedback, suggestions for other movies for us to review, or topics for us to talk about, you can send those all to overthinkingmoviespodcast at gmail.com. And for more episodes of Overthinking Movies, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. You can also find us on goldhitswkva.com, star967.com, and wchx1055.com by clicking on the podcast tab at the top. I'm surprised how optimistic I kind of am for James Gunn taking over the DC Cinematic Universe. Will it work out? Well, I guess we'll have to see how Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 comes out as he caps off his work at Marvel to see if he still has it in him to make some really fun movies. That's a wrap.